I had a dear friend who was a director of missions back in Ohio where I used to pastor. And he had gone to be a guest speaker at a, a church not uncommon for the director of missions to be asked to fill the pulpit when, he, when the pastor's away. But it was a little unique in this particular situation because when Steve got up to preach, there was a man in the congregation that literally hollered out loud, Turn him on, God! Turn him on! And Steve was inspired by that until they got to the latter part of the worship service and Steve was still preaching. And evidently he had gone beyond the guy's lunchtime. Because the very same voice hollered out, Turn him off! Turn him off! Well, it is my prayer that God will turn me on and you won't have to turn me off. Amen? (laughs) So that's the warning. We will go from Genesis to Revelation and you will be done for lunch. I want to uh, make sure that Landon stays truthful to his statement. But I do want to begin this morning with a confession. That is never a good way to begin any kind of service. But I do want to begin with a confession. After all, we do say confession is good for the soul, right? It also provides good blackmail material. Just keep that in mind. Here's my confession. I am an action-adventure junkie. That's my confession. I am an action adventure junkie. I have been since childhood. Whenever I would earn some extra money by doing chores around the neighborhood, whether it be mowing lawns, raking leaves, or some other odd job in our neighborhood, I would rush down to the local 7-Eleven for a Slurpee and a comic book. I would sit on the front steps of our brick rancher and I would lose myself in the world of good versus evil, arch enemy versus superhero. Whenever a wrong needed righting or the oppressed needed a rescuer, I was there. I cannot tell you how many times I helped Superman save Metropolis or Batman and Robin Gotham City. I raced around the world with the Flash. I explored the seven seas with Aquaman. I wandered through the galaxy with the Green Lantern. I loved comic books. In fact, I still do. But every good action adventure has the same non-negotiable elements. There is a power-hungry, ego-driven arch-enemy who threatens, kills, or seeks to destroy a fear-filled town full of people, a clock ticking toward imminent destruction, and a superhero who comes along just in the nick of time to save the day. A small Midwestern town is being terrorized by outlaws, and along comes John Wayne. Gotham City is under siege by the Joker, the Penguin, the Riddler, or whoever happens to be the villain of the week. And along comes Batman and the boy Wonder. But this morning, I want to introduce you to a different kind of superhero. 
Because for all of the creativity of the authors and artists of comic book lore, none have matched the real-life action adventure played out on the cosmic pages of human history. A power-hungry, ego-driven devil, hell-bent on destroying a world, people headed toward eternal damnation, fear-filled folks void of hope, and along comes a superhero just in the nick of time to save the day. I encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to the fifth chapter of the last book of the Bible. The fifth chapter of the last book of the Bible. As I introduce you this morning to God's superhero, not a caped crusader, but a crimson-covered savior. A hero armed not with mystical powers, but with mercy and love. A hero who conquered, not by force, but by sacrifice. His name is Jesus, Son of God, Savior of man. And what Jesus has redeemed he will restore. And that is good news. We need not fear what the future holds when we know the one who holds that future in his hands. When we look around us at the world in which we live, it can be terrorizing, can't it? It is horrifying, and it's much that leads to fear. What does tomorrow hold? What will it look like for us? Well, here's what we need to understand. God knew we would experience trepidation over these tense and troubling times in which we live. And so he has provided for us a document that describes in great detail what you and I need to know about what we are going to face. Even better, he shares with us the outcome at the outset. Let me say it again. We need not fear what the future holds if we know the one who holds that future in his hands. Revelation, the fifth chapter. I encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and please, please, please open it. Keep it in front of you as we walk through the Word of God together. Because what I say means nothing. But what God says means everything. If you are joining us via Facebook Live, please grab a copy of your Bible. If you don't have one, I understand enough about technology, split screen it. Pull it up in a different tab. Pull up Revelation chapter 5 and keep our screen on one side and the Word of God on the other. I understand that I have a face made for radio, so if you want to cut that out of it and just listen, that's good. <laughs> but please, please, please follow along in the Word of God together. Test what you hear alongside the plumb line of God's holy Word. Revelation chapter 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? 
And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. I hold in my hands. You hold in your hands a divine document that tells us about our past, about our present, and about our future. It tells us what God has done, is doing, and will do. It reveals human history from its embryonic conception to its ultimate conclusion. Now think about it. In the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we see the commencement of heaven and earth, don't we? In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we see the consummation of heaven and earth. John declares, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we see the dawn of Satan in his activity. But in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we see the doom of sin and its activity. In the book of Genesis, we see the entrance of sin and the curse. In the book of Revelation, we see the exit of sin and the curse. In the book of Genesis, the tree of life is relinquished. But in the book of Revelation, the tree of life is regained. In the book of Genesis, we see the dawn of Satan and his activity, right? In Revelation, we see the doom of Satan and his activity. In the book of Genesis, sorrow is begun. But praise God in the book of Revelation, sorrow is banished forever. Genesis to Revelation. Got you covered? And here in the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation, we see the cosmic climactic conclusion about to unfold. Our eyes are drawn to the throne room of glory as this incredible cosmic event is about to be unveiled. And John zeroes in on three key elements to this divine drama. We see a scroll... We see a savior, a spiritual superhero, if you will, and we hear a song. A scroll, a savior, and a song. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Let's begin at the beginning. The beginning is always a good place to begin, amen? So let's begin at the beginning. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. What is so special about this scroll? It is, without question, the most important document to appear anywhere in all of Holy Scripture because it is the title deed to all of creation. It was relinquished in the garden, redeemed on Golgotha, and about to be revealed in glory. It represents a forfeited inheritance, and the price God's superhero, the Lord Jesus, paid to buy it back. According to Hebrew custom, 
whenever an inheritance was forfeited due to poverty or distress or anguish, and the family had to give up the inheritance of their fathers, a scroll was written. And on that scroll were recounted the reason for forfeiture. That scroll was sealed. Or perhaps it was sealed to hide the embarrassing turn of events that led to the forfeiture. But there was a second scroll that was penned. And on that scroll were the terms and conditions of redemption. These are the things that must be done. These are the terms that must be met in order for the inheritance to be returned to its rightful heir. With me so far? And over the course of time, those two scrolls were consolidated. On the inside, the reason of forfeiture. On the outside, the terms of redemption. Here is what must be done. These are the conditions that must be met in order for the deed to be returned. When God created man, it was His intent for man to control the earth, not merely to be caretakers of it. And so He entrusted the title deed of all creation to His most prized creature, man. And we all know how that turned out. Satan came along and swindled Adam and Eve out of their inheritance and usurped their authority. When Adam sinned, all hell broke loose here on the earth. Every man since that day in the Garden of Eden, has suffered from forfeited inheritance. Now think about it. When did death enter the world? When Adam sinned and Satan assumed control. When did sickness, suffering, sorrow enter the world? When Adam sinned and Satan assumed control. When did childbearing become a horrifying, painful process of labor? when Adam sinned and Satan assumed control. Evidence of demonic domination is everywhere we turn. Every hospital, every cemetery, every prison institution, every psychiatric ward, every dysfunctional family, homeless child and battered spouse is a haunting, hellish reminder of forfeited inheritance. But mankind is not the only one who has suffered from this forfeited inheritance. All of creation has suffered from forfeited inheritance. The book of Romans tells us, for we know that the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Disease, drought, typhoons, tidal waves, earthquakes are all evidence of this forfeited inheritance squandered away by Adam and Eve in the garden over a single piece of fruit. So the scroll in the hands of this mighty one is a scroll of creation. On one side, the reason of forfeiture. On the other, 
the terms of redemption. Continue looking at the Word of God. It is sealed with seven seals. Seven is the number of completeness, totality, meaning nothing would be added to it or, or taken from it until one came forward who had met the cost and conditions of redemption and was able to return what had been forwarded. So John takes us from the scroll to the search for one to open it. Verses 2 and 3. And I saw a strong angel with a loud voice proclaiming, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? What is so shocking about this Savior? Well, notice the strong voice of this holy herald echoes through every nook and cranny of creation, seeking one worthy to open the scroll and unleash the terms of cosmic redemption. But look at, this, look at the question. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Do you see it? Yes? No? I need big print. Do you see it? This is important. Do you see it? Notice the question is not who is willing to open the scroll. The question is who is worthy to open the scroll. Two very different questions. Amen? Who is worthy to open the scroll? When the angels and the principalities and the powers and the host of heaven looked at the cost and conditions of redemption, they shrank from it in unworthiness. Michael, the archangel, worthy to announce the Lord's arrival on planet earth, was not worthy to open the scroll concerning heaven and earth. Many throughout human history have wanted to open the scroll, but none have been found worthy to open the scroll. In Jesus' day, King Herod tried and failed. In the first century, the New Testament world, Nero, Caesar, tried and failed. Napoleon, Hitler, Stalin were all willing, but none worthy. No preacher, no patriarch, and praise God, no politician was found worthy to open the scroll concerning heaven and earth. But continue looking at the text. The voice went out in heaven and on earth. And look at the last element. And under the earth. Where is that? The echo goes through the corridors of hell itself. Who is worthy to open the scroll? Death, decay, corruption, thought back to the worst three days of their demonic existence. Back to a little garden in a tiny tomb on the estate of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And they cringed when they thought afresh of that stone rolled away and those grave clothes sitting empty. Even Satan, 
who once deemed himself worthy to take the scroll had to sit there in defiant silence. Heaven, earth, hell itself were as quiet as they had been since that day on Golgotha's hill. And the emptiness of the moment, the silence of the event, broke John's heart. Look at verse 4. Then I began to weep. How did he weep? Greatly. Greatly. I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why did John weep so deeply and mourn so heavily? Because as long as that scroll remained sealed, sin would continue to pervert and Satan would continue to prevail. Without the opening of this scroll and the hope it contained, you and I would be stuck in this spiritual spiral of sin and sorrow. So the tears of John are the tears of every one of us in this room who have ever stood beside the casket of a loved one. They are the tears of broken hopes, broken hearts, broken hopes, and broken dreams. They are the weeping and wailing produced by sickness, suffering, sorrow, and sadness. Without the opening of this scroll and the hope it contains, you and I would be left with what we have right now. Not exactly encouraging, is it? And suddenly, this deafening silence is broken by the strong voice of the one standing beside the throne. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. John turns to see a cosmic crusader, a hulking heavenly hero bearing the banners of conquest. Instead, he sees the maimed figure of a gentle lamb bearing the evidence of a cross. Talk about a plot twist. Not any lamb, mind you, but a lamb as though slain. Verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Not just a lamb, but a lamb as though it had been slain gets even more interesting. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb four times. How many times, Marco? Four times. But in the book of Revelation alone, He is referred to as the Lamb 31 times. Wow. 30 one times. 
what we will be reminded of for all eternity is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who became our kinsman redeemer and did for us what we could never do for ourselves. But here in Revelation chapter 5, John uses a very, very unique word for lamb. It is a word for lamb that appears in only one other place in all of the Bible. It is the word arneos. And it literally means a little pet lamb. He's a lion from the tribe of Judah in terms of prophetic, prophetic importance. He's the root of David in terms of divine royalty. But he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in terms of our redemption. And he is the one who steps forward to take this scroll. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He did not inherit the right to open those seals. He earned the right to open those seals because he met the cost and conditions of redemption through the shedding of his own blood in the midst of the four and twenty elders, in the midst of the cherubim, in the midst of the host of heaven, in the midst of all God's redeemed saints, John sees an Arneas, a little pet lamb. And he takes that scroll and he says, Father, I am worthy to open the scroll. I made it with my hands. I bought it with my blood and I am going to restore it to its original place in God's grand plan. You see it? In the midst of the four and twenty elders, a little pet lamb. Now remember back to the Passover. In the instructions for the Passover, each family was to take a little lamb. Were they to walk out in the flock and just take any old lamb? No. They were take, to take a little lamb based on its perfection from the firstling of the flocks. Right? No blemish. They would take that little lamb into the house for four days. The kids would grow attached to it. They would fight over who got to sleep with it. After all, little lambs are cute, aren't they? The family would develop feelings for it. And then four days later, that father would take that lamb down to, down to the temple and he would slit its throat. As the family in tears watched that blood pouring out for the sins of that family. Now back to the passage. Notice John tells us not just a lamb, but a lamb as though slain. You see it? The signs of his suffering are in his body. In his body were the marks of his mission. In his wrist, the scars of nails. 
in his side, evidence of having been pierced with the point of a spear. On his brow, the scars of jagged Judean thorns. Do you realize these scars are going to be the only man-made things in heaven? The only man-made things that will stand for our all time and eternity are the marks of our redemption. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 6 says, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your hands? Then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Wow. Every day throughout all eternity, you and I are going to be reminded of the price Jesus paid for us to be there. We will see in his hands and in his feet, in his forehead and in his side, the evidence of his love for us. What will stand for all time and eternity? The scars of our redemption. The reminder of this is how much Jesus loved us. We saved. Simple question. Are we saved by our works? We're saved by His blood. You see, our salvation is not spelled do. It's spelled done. It is not what we do that allows us entrance into this grand celebration John describes. It is what Jesus has done. What He did for us on Calvary's cross. The Jews had a hard time with that. Even after the resurrection, they thought salvation was faith plus circumcision. Faith plus the keeping of the law. But it is not what we do. It is what Jesus has already done, past tense. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen? Jesus made this abundantly clear when he announced, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We sang about this earlier. Through Jesus, the pauper becomes a prince. The blue collar becomes a king. The afflicted, affluent, and those in rags will be raised to walk in riches, praise God. You may sit in the room this morning and you may be poor. Sometimes we use the term dirt poor, <laughs> right? You may not have two coins to rub together. Are you still with me? But there you will have riches that make the diamonds and pearls of this world look like mere dust. No wonder Jesus encouraged us, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves cannot break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You're still tracking with me in the text. How many of you still have Revelation 5 in front of you? Good, good, good. Very good. So let's continue. The price of redemption, the people of redemption, 
the privileges of redemption, you see all of that? Cause us to burst forth with the chorus of the redeemed. From the scroll, through the Savior, to the song. Verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We talk a lot in our society today about privilege, right? Look at this privilege. Privilege made possible to every one of us through Jesus himself. Every tribe, tongue, people, nation. What's the privilege? Verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Wow. Wow. The privileges of our redemption. Well, here's the question. Who sings? Verse 9 starts with that phrase, and they sang a new song, saying, who are they? Well, look at the song. What is the song singing about? Who sings? The saved sing. Those who have repented of their sin, placed their faith in Jesus, and surrendered their hearts to the Lamb, these are they who sing on that day. They are singing about the cross. They are singing about the blood. And it is a song that can only be sung by the saved. How do I know this? Notice the angels are painfully silent at this point. They do not sing. Because the angels will never know what it is like to be a sinner saved by grace. Let me say it again. Angels will never know what it's like to be a sinner saved by grace. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, in discussing the concept of salvation, leaves us with this interesting phrase, which things the angels long to look into. The angels are not saved, but they study salvation and they witness the wonder of it all through you and me. Some years ago, Dr. Jerry Vines, then senior pastor of First Baptist Church, Jacksonville, Florida, introduced a convention audience to a little fellow he named Billy Baptist. And as I recall, the story went something like this. On a cold winter night, two church visitors went down to the house of an alcoholic man. They witnessed and shared the gospel with the alcoholic man, but he was rather uninterested and indifferent. His wife, who worked at a fast food restaurant, listened a little more intent, uh, attentively 
but was not interested. And then there was our little fellow Billy. And the Bible verses seemed to make no impression on him at all. But he did get interested when they said if Billy would come to Sunday school, there were cookies and cola in the Sunday school. Maybe Billy might come to Sunday school sometime. And those two church visitors left that night with a feeling of defeat, a feeling of failure. But they failed to remember that God is faithful to those who are faithful to Him. That Sunday, Billy did go to Sunday school. And guess what? He really did enjoy the cookies and the cola. <laughs> it's the worship service now. And little Billy is there. And the congregation is singing glory to his name. And the angels are flapping their wings to the rhythm. And then all of a sudden, wide-eyed with wonder, they witness it all. And the angels say, look at Billy! Look at Billy! There are tears in his eyes. Look at Billy! He's walking down the aisle. Look at Billy! He's giving his hand to the preacher and his heart to Jesus. And the choir burst forth. There's a new name written down in glory. But look over at the angels. And the angels' wings are folded. And then Dr. Vines concluded, Holy, holy, holy is what the angels say. And I expect to help them make the glad hosannas ring. But when we sing redemption story, angels fold their wings. For angels never knew the joy that our salvation brings. Amen? And here's what's even more exciting. There may be some Billies among us this morning. Right? Whether you came with a friend or were dragged by your parents. <laughs> or you look around at the world and everything that is not nailed down seems to be coming apart and you're looking for answers. Like Billy, you're here. You're not here by accident. You're here by divine appointment. Because God wants you to know that He loves you. Jesus died for you. And forgiveness from your past and hope for your future is available to everyone in this room who will put their faith, hope, and trust in this Lamb. Back to the text. Notice what John says. Verse 6, I saw a lamb standing. Do you see it? He does not lay in a grave. He stands in glory. He stands there as evidence that he, have, he has met the cost and conditions to the deed of your life. And if you would surrender to Him, 
a future and a hope is available to you. Finally, back to the text. We see the cosmic crescendo reach fever pitch. As all of heaven joins in the chorus, verse 11, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and, notice this, under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Now watch this. Look at those two verses. Just, just check this. Track it with me. Everything Jesus was denied here, He will receive there. Do you see it? Just walk through it with me. Verses 11 and 12. He came in weakness. He will reign in power. Men called Him the poorest of the poor. He will reign as the richest of the rich. He was mocked for His weakness. He will be praised for His power. He was butchered like a lamb. He will receive the honor of a king. He will receive the honor of a king. He was rejected in shame. He will be bathed in glory. He was cursed here by the sinner. But look at what it says. On that day, He will be blessed by us, the saints. What a day that will be. The day when every wrong will be righted. The day when every sickness healed. And all of creation will be restored to its grand place in God's grand plan. All because of God's superhero, Jesus, Son of God, Savior of man. Listen, beyond our fears, there is Jesus. Beyond our heartbreaks and heartaches, there is the promise of His coming. We need not fear what the future holds when we know the one who holds that future in His hands. Amen? That is good news. We have seen the last chapter of the Bible. Guess what? God wins. <laughs> God wins. No politician can change that. God wins. No policy coming out of Capitol Hill can change that. God wins. No amount of unrest in the Middle East can change that. God wins. We need not fear what the future holds when we know the one who holds the future in His hands. But here's the question. Are you certain of your future? Have you placed your faith, hope, and trust in this Lamb who died for you on the cross but now stands triumphantly in glory? Will you be able to join in the chorus of the redeemed on that day? You need not fear what your future holds if you know the one who holds your future in His hands.
And that is good news. Let's pray together. Thank you. Thank you for listening so attentively. And it is my deepest prayer that you have been encouraged because you see the last chapter. In the midst of all of the chaos, in the midst of the confusion, God is still on the throne. And let's be honest, there are those of us who are children of God, believers, and we know all of that. And yet, in the midst of the chaos, we lose sight of that. And maybe in the quiet place of your own heart right now, you just need to pray, God, thank you for reminding me that you are not up for re-election. Thank you for reminding me that you are still on the throne. Thank you for reminding me that what Jesus has redeemed, He will restore. And I am part of that restoration. And I will live with hope. But there may be a few Billies among us this morning. And you sit here scared, confused. You're not confident in your future. That can change today. God loves you. Jesus, the Lamb of God, died for you on a cross, rose triumphantly from a grave, stands in glory, and is ready to forgive you of your past, and offer you a future and a hope if you at this very moment would put your faith, hope, and trust in Him and what He's done for you. The angels in glory peer over the battlements of heaven hushed with anticipation to see what happens at this moment. If you've never given your heart and life to Jesus and what He did for you on the cross, but today you want to seal that and say, I want that future and I want that hope. I want to give myself to Jesus. Would you just slip your hand up? Just right where you are, just slip your hand up. My friend Clint would love to talk with you after the service if you would like to know how to do what you need to do to secure your future. As we look at the world around us, remember we need not fear the future because we know the one who holds that future in His hands. And all God's people said, Amen.